let's officially start the um, interview of Mr. John C. Joe, MD, MPH, Chief Executive Officer of Vigor Medical Systems, Inc. in Houston, Texas. John, start off and tell us a little bit about yourself personally, your background, and a little bit of your professional overview, your studies and specialization. Sure, I'll just go in chronologic order. Perfect. Um, as you mentioned, uh, I'm in Houston, Texas, and uh, I went to university here uh, in Houston and then uh, went out of town for medical school, uh, but still within the state of Texas, and then came back to Houston to the Texas Medical Center for my training after medical school. Um, first trained in general surgery for a year, and then uh, in family medicine um, in the U.S. Uh, family medicine is a three-year residency training program after medical school. Um, other parts of the world may call this uh, general practitioner primary care, okay. um, but we have formal study in uh, internal medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, pediatrics, surgery, um, and a number of specialties like cardiology, pulmonology, and so on. So um, broad background, and then I've been interested in population health and looking at how to improve not just individual patients and you know, people's health, but um, groups of, of people. And so I obtained a master's in public health as well. Mm. I learned some statistical methods and administrative and research tools um, during the program. I went on to start off in private practice in the U.S. in primary care for a few years, uh, but then was recruited back to Baylor College of Medicine, where I did my family medicine residency. And um, when I uh, joined the faculty, uh, I was uh, both a teacher, administrator, and a direct frontline patient caregiver. So in wearing those multiple hats, um, I, I had... Uh, broad uh, range of, of work that I did. Uh, the administrative work, though, uh, was um, very interesting because it ended up leading me down a different path in my career than most of my peers, um, from private practice as well as academic medicine. One of the things I mentioned earlier, I'm interested in population health. Um, one of the things I, I secured funding for as, as a condition of taking the position uh, at the, the medical school running the clinic, uh, was funding for an electronic uh, record system. Now, this was in the late uh, or mid-90s when software was still in relatively uh, its infancy. And uh, but I got the funding, nevertheless, and we implemented the software. But after more than a few occasions of being at the clinic at 8 o'clock at night, uh, along with some of my colleagues uh, who worked for me in the clinic trying to finish our records on the computer system, I thought there, there's, there must be a better way. This is not sustainable. And so one of those uh, ways was actually to have the patients. You know, the internet was just in its infancy at the time. This, mm -hmm. was, this was in 1997, and uh, the internet bubble was just starting to, to, to grow. It, it wasn't uh, anywhere near bursting yet, um, but uh, there were portals uh, that were available in other industries, but not in healthcare. And so I approached some investors about uh, launching a company uh, to create that product. 
anyway, I'm going to, without going into all those details, I, we can get into that later. But, but um, I started down the path of becoming an entrepreneur, um, starting a internet business or one of the first digital health businesses in the U.S. Uh, while maintaining my faculty position at Baylor and uh, you know, continued for another 20 years as an entrepreneur and an academic physician until recent years uh, when I retired from the faculty practice and focused on consulting and on being a serial entrepreneur. Okay, that that's interesting. And I'm, I'm going to diverge, but... I know you have a strong involvement in technology, but that is not something that you studied at the university level. So all of that expertise you developed and acquired after you joined industry and sort of developed that expertise yourself. Is that correct? Um, well, I did have a small foundation. Um, I uh, was in this transitional time when I was in high school I had started off uh, using the slide rule and punch card programming at the first half of high school. And in the second half, we got our first computer labs, the Apple IIs and Commodore 64. So I, I learned to do basic programming in high school. And when I went to university, um, my first year at university was also the first year that that university had a computer lab, mm. um, a microcomputer lab for, for students. So um, instead of doing punch card programming, as the previous classes had done, I was able to take a couple of programming classes. It was really for fun back in those days, programming video games and, and some other routines. But um, after you know, two or three times up at 3 a.m. trying to find one or two characters, The image has frozen. Okay, um, I, it's fortunately this is going to be an edited tape, so we can. This is not going to be a live broadcast, but uh, I think we may experience that today. Um, it, it's been a bad day for internet in China this week. There's been a lot of disruption, so you were you were just at the point of being speaking about being up at three o'clock in the morning before before things froze. So let's let's just continue on from there. University, but uh, that was uh, continuing a hobby that I had from high school. I was fairly focused on a career in medicine as I started the university. And after my second or third time being up at three in the morning trying to find one or two characters that I missed that caused my, my loops or program routines to crash, um, it, it convinced me that I'm not going to be a programmer. But at the same time, I I knew that computers are going to change the world someday. Mm -hmm. So I, I took those classes and kept them in the back of my mind after I went off to medical school. But, um, there were tools that I 
want to leverage at some point. And, and after I became an academic and administrative position and began implementing software to help clinic efficiency and also research databases and outcomes improvement, that, that's when I started doing more on-the-job training and learning. As the technology came to market, you know, there's an ongoing learning as new things were released into healthcare, or actually other industries first. Yeah. Uh, healthcare was slow to adopt, so, so I would continue to monitor how technology was developing other industries and looking for ways to apply it in healthcare. Now, you've, you've obviously had a, a very strong involvement around the Houston area. What, what about since that time? Has your business become a little bit more international? You've been involved in consulting. Do you travel a fair bit to other locales? Yes, that actually started um, fairly early on um, in the you know academic medicine, clinical research. Um, that's a, an international business. Uh, you know, we publish in, in English language journals are um, read widely parts of the world. Um, in my case, it wasn't so much clinical research as it is applied medical informatics. So uh, even uh, back in 2000, I remember um, my first trip to Singapore mm -hmm. uh, was for the eHealth Asia conference. I was invited to speak at that conference. I'd already been speaking at uh, conferences in the U.S. Uh, in the late 90s um, regarding the software that implemented and some of the things that we were doing with technology clinic at Baylor or at the medical school. I started off as a clinic administrator um, and after implementing software in my clinic, we used that actually as a pilot sign for the entire uh, medical college with all of its different departments and medical specialties. And so after after the uh, electronic record system was deemed successful in my clinic, uh, then we began rolling the software out in, in all of the other departments from okay. internal medicine to surgery to OBGYN, and, and I ended up uh, moving from being medical director of my clinic to being a director of, of medical informatics or clinical information systems for the whole Baylor College of Medicine. Okay. And then, uh, and then at that time, we didn't have our own teaching hospital. We had many affiliated hospitals um, that were owned by other organizations uh, for our hospital-based care, and, um, and soon enough, uh, the, the management of those affiliate hospitals began uh, paying for part of my time from Baylor to help them implement information systems within the hospital setting and then also integrate our clinic information into the hospital information. And, uh, and I spoke at conferences about the work that we were doing at our institutions um, and then people began inviting me further and further afield. And so then I ended up going to Singapore and London and Shanghai to speak at conferences. Um, and it was through speaking at those conferences that um, okay. people then would contact me afterwards uh, to consult for them in implementing systems the same way that our affiliate hospitals here in Houston had begun to help them in the late 90s. Okay. Now, we're going to turn to Vigor Medical Systems in a second, which you're CEO of. But um, it, it sounds like you still have other peripheral activities. Vigor is not 100% of your time. How, how much is, is Vigor of your life, and how much are you still doing other things these days? <clears throat> it, 
it's um, uh, Vigor takes up the majority of my time, uh, but uh, for the last uh, 25 uh, or even maybe 30 years, I've, I've been a, a multitasker. I've always had uh, more than, well, for, for 25 plus years, I've had at least two to three titles at any given time in any given organization. And uh, it, it's been helpful because um, it's cross-pollination ideas. You know, I'm, I'm both a purchaser and consumer as well as a vendor or supplier. So I understand both sides of both worlds. Um, and I'm also a user. I don't spend much time practicing medicine now, but I still fully licensed and certified and mm-hmm. maintain hospital privileges. So uh, I eat my own cooking, so to speak, and I understand what it's like on the front lines. That's extremely helpful when producing products for physicians yeah. or nurses um, to understand the user experience that's required. Okay. So let's now turn to Vigor Medical System. Give us a, a general overview of the company, where it is currently, facilities, number of staff. Is it still in the R&D stage or is it operational? <clears throat> yeah, so um, um, just a, a quick background. Um, this uh, company's technology was invented at Duke University by students there. They were friends of, of one of my kids who uh, attended Duke University, and so I was initially an informal mentor to them, and the university did a fine job of helping patent the technology, register a company, and obtain seed funding. And so they did the R&D work there, and, uh, and had an early prototype and complete clinical trials which proved the technology. And then uh, after they incorporated the business, I came on board Vice President for Software, bringing my digital health expertise to their medical device and technology expertise. And then they had another person serving as CEO at that time, but gradually I ended up replacing that person and became CEO. And so um, this has all happened in the past um, four years or so. And company now is going through regulatory approval process for medical devices um, in various countries for, for its um, for products. And then uh, we're also in the business development stage forming partnerships with potential uh, distributors and go-to-market partners in different parts of the world. So it was a son or daughter that had the initial connection to Duke as opposed to yourself? That's right. Uh, that's right. I, I uh, had uh, some very loose connections uh, to people there uh, in the academic medicine arena, um, but um, it was through my dog, in fact, that uh, I became much more closely connected to, to people, uh, classmates uh, who were the founders and inventors, um, and then with the faculty and members who were advising them. We, we actually have the former chancellor of the university as one of our seed investors. Um, we have the head of their technology transfer office also as one of our investors. And I've since gotten to know a number of people of the past few years. Interesting. So just as an aside, is, is your daughter exploring a career in the, in the field of medicine as well? 
actually, um, uh, she is uh, completely in a different uh, field in the arts. Okay. She's, she's a professional ballerina, as a matter of fact. Um, huh. But she uh, had a, um, uh, in what they called um, interdisciplinary studies, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so part of, uh, in addition to arts, um, she, she had business and digital media um, experience. So, so she helps us uh, actually uh, is our webmaster for very diverse background interesting D describe the the actual product or technology um, how it works how a person would use it what it does the the type of person who would be best suited to to use it so uh, let me draw an analogy um, most people know somebody that has diabetes, um, where there's you know, abnormal blood sugar control, and uh, most people with diabetes uh, will need to check their blood sugar with a finger stick device, um, and then they have to modify their diet and take medications, uh, sometimes uh, including injections of insulin to control the, the blood sugar. Yeah. Um, so diabetes is a chronic disease, and uh, measure it, monitor it, uh, and then you treat according to objective data. And uh, for lung diseases, the, uh, such as asthma, chronic, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as asthma, and then others like cystic fibrosis, pulmonary fibrosis, um, the, uh, the conditions are much harder to, to measure. It's, the treatments are primarily based on how someone subjectively feels. Am I short of breath? Am I feeling tight in my chest? And decreased capacity in my lungs? Am I feeling that? Am I coughing a lot? Um, so it's difficult to titrate medications to properly manage the disease facing uh, on subjective uh, symptoms rather than objective data about the patient. Um, if you go to a clinic, there will be devices, sometimes the size of a refrigerator, mm -hmm. uh, that have tubes connected to them, and then you hold the tube to a mouthpiece, yeah. mouth, and sometimes there's a clamp to close the nostril so that the air only goes through the mouth and into the tubing, and then you exhale as, as hard as you can or as long as you can, depending on the specific stage of the test. Um, and then that large device um, calculates your lung volume and the flow rates and a number of other parameters, you know, more than a dozen different parameters from that maneuver. Um, they, those devices cost more than $20,000 each in the U.S. Um, prices are similar in other parts of the country and adjusted the currency exchange rates. And in recent years, there have been some smaller versions that might be a little bit less accurate that have been reduced down to the size of perhaps a laptop computer with some peripheral tubing paraphernalia that you blow into. And those uh, equipment still cost a few thousand US dollars. Mm -hmm. So as a result, uh, many parts of the emerging market uh, do not have spirometry. And, and there's no uh, real equivalent to a glucometer for diabetes that people can carry around in person pocket. Okay? 
there's something called a peak flow meter. Yep. Devices that can measure for about a second or so how much how force you can blow out of the air. Um, but there's no um, portable equivalent of the lung function machines that you find in clinics and hospitals. Um, so what what Vigor has done, uh, what our founders did, uh, is actually find a way uh, to perform the full range of lung function testing uh, that you do with five to twenty-five thousand dollar device that could be refrigerator size and then compact that into something that you can hold in your hand or carry in your pocket and then transmit that data um, through a connection to your cell from uh, into the cloud so that uh, the, uh, the physicians that can monitor this interpret this kind of data can look at a, a dashboard anywhere from anywhere in the world and get feedback to the patient now, I'm very interested in the asthma application because I, I had mild asthma at one point in my life and I'm concerned maybe one day my, my daughter will. So is this sort of like a, a wearable that monitors you or is it sort of like once a day you, you blow into this machine? How, how does it, is it actually applied? It's a device that you carry with you, not, not necessarily wear. So you carry it in your pocket or your purse or keep nearby. Um, it's about the size of a cell phone uh, in terms of length and width. Um, it's thicker than a phone because it has a cylinder to which you attach a mouthpiece and blow air through. Uh, but our, our device has no moving parts. There, there are some efforts to create some of those um, laptop computer-sized devices that have a turbine uh, in them, uh, and that has some limitations and functionality and requires some calibration. Uh, so another aspect of Vigor's device is that this technology doesn't involve any moving parts, so it doesn't require any calibration. Uh, so, so it's something that you, you carry with you and that anytime, anywhere, you can measure your lung function very interesting very interesting so it's like a a very miniature version of the the big blow-in monitors that, that you talked about that anywhere that you feel maybe your your chest is tight you can you can do a test just to at that moment to see if if there may be an issue is that the correct um sort of usage Yes, uh, that, that's right. So we have we have two targets. Uh, one is uh, the individual patient level, somebody that has a lung disease and needs to be monitored, or potentially somebody that's in a hazardous environment, on occupational health exposures, okay. um, the minors or, or people exposed to asbestos or, or silica, um, environmental um, airborne particles that, that may cause damage to the lungs over time. So occupational health surveillance is another use for the personal device in addition to chronic disease management for people with asthma or COPD. But the, the other aspect is for professionals, for physicians. And I mentioned the cost and the size of spirometry equipment in the emerging market. Um, oftentimes physicians don't have access to uh, lung function testing for their patients. So, mm -hmm. so even 
physician is making subjective diagnoses um, based on symptoms and maybe listening to the patient's lungs <clears throat> and not actually quantifying the volume of the lungs and, and the, the flow rates breathing in various under various conditions. And so so there's a large unmet uh, need um, in emerging markets for more affordable uh, and accurate yet accurate uh, spirometry. So the people who would use this, whether it's a physician or an individual user, when they do the test, so the, the information is, is going to to vigor, so it's it's a private medical company that would do the analytics or, or give feedback, or would it go to a hospital? Who's who's doing the diagnostics and, and giving a response to the patient or physician? So for the um, individual test, uh, we have the protocol that would be followed in the clinic or hospital with one of the large expensive machines. Um, this is a very similar protocol to be used on our mobile devices the data generated would be reviewed, um, could be um, seen on the screen as a professional device that we have, um, or if it's uh, uploaded to the internet, then it can be printed out uh, from the software, and the physician would make the interpretation, diagnosis, and staging the, the same way they would by looking at the report from the, the large, non-portable uh, devices. Um, but uh, what we do in Accumulating the data, however, um, is looking at multiple tests over time for the same patient or comparing the population of patients that may have similar characteristics um, as, the, as the one that the physician is seeing at that moment. And by accumulating data over a larger population, look for patterns that, and associations. Um, so uh, one of our other products besides the device and the software that displays the data to the physician Patient. Uh, it's analytics. Um, so we have an artificial intelligence and machine learning component that looks at the uh, longitudinal data for an individual or the static data for a population of patients. Okay. Um, and as we look at that association, then we begin and begin to correlate different factors that may be predictive of when the patient may experience a worsening. So that, that's an additional product that will be released later. There will be additional regulatory approvals required for that type of software product. Um, but um, that, uh, that's where value will come uh, in the future uh, to advance the, the state of care and advance the knowledge base uh, of lung diseases. And that should be of value to pharmaceutical companies that are developing therapeutics, clinical researchers that are tracking what is effective in terms of drugs or other preventive measures for lung So you, you mentioned a moment ago, it's going through the regulatory application process and in different countries. Um, which countries are you focusing on now and when do you expect those first regulatory approvals will be given? So the, uh, the four largest blocks uh, would be U.S. and Europe, and then uh, on the other side uh, of the world, China and India, because of the, the sheer populations. 
and uh, and also uh, the lack of um, equipment in many parts of China and India. So, so we have um, Western Hemisphere and Eastern Hemisphere markets. Those are the, the prominent ones. And the process for that uh, will probably take us through the second half of next year uh, before regulatory approvals are, are granted. And then there are a number of other countries um, in the Middle East and South Asia where there's high prevalence lung diseases in the of course, Latin America and Africa. Um, so really, the, the global prevalence uh, for, for asthma and COPD, just those two conditions alone, um, there are more than half a billion people that are affected by asthma or COPD. Um, when we consider um, other lung conditions, um, as many as a billion or a seventh of the world's population, uh, they have uh, maybe a target uh, user for our products. Is it just one regulatory application in the EU to get approval for? all of the EU now 27 states? Yes, uh, th that's right. Uh, with, with Brexit, we'll have to go through a separate process for UK, but for the EU countries, uh, it's just one process. Okay. Now, this is interesting because I, I have a personal interest in Brexit. Have you started a new application just for the UK now that it's no longer in the EU? Uh, we, we haven't yet. We're, we're working with our legal advisors uh, on that. Um, there is some possibility uh, as UK works with the EU that they may continue the same uh, regulatory scheme for medical devices um, at the EU, but we have contingency plans in place and basically to do a separate submission. Um, so at the moment, um, we're working with our legal advisors and waiting for additional direction from them uh, before starting the process. So two practice. I think the UK hasn't. Go on. The UK, I think, hasn't decided yet. I, I think it's looking highly likely as a no deal. So I suspect if you want to use the UK, there may be a separate application. Just, just a personal opinion. <laughs> the, the, the rollout and the application. The first target market. Are you going to? sort of look at hospitals or physicians, or are you going to market directly to, to individuals? And then the second related question is, um, what about the physical manufacture of, of these devices? Presumably that would be done by some different company that, that may be a partner firm to you? Yes, um, in, uh, in this day and age, um, it's becoming much more common utilize the contract manufacturing services. You know, a decade or two ago, um, a startup company that's trying to manufacture a device, uh, particularly in the medical arena that's highly specialized, uh, may have to raise funds um, for the manufacturing process internally. Uh, but now there's a level of sophistication uh, in the global contract manufacturing firms that um, it's more likely than not feasible to find a contract manufacturer in multiple countries who can create fairly sophisticated, specialized devices such as ours. So uh, we have not uh, invested in any factories or uh, manufacturing managers. Uh, we 
have some contracts with manufacturing partners and are continuing to speak with others um, so that we can try to source as close to our target market as possible. Um, given the um, politics and economics uh, these days um, of trade and supply chains, um, we were starting started right off the bat planning uh, on having multiple manufacturing sites across the, the world that are in close proximity or within our target markets. And, and your initial customers, will they be sort of public health hospitals, individuals, all of the above? So we're looking at, um, at economies of scale and um, definitely not uh, marketing to individual physician practices. So we are looking at uh, larger organizations. And our target market um, is uh, the value-based uh, care market. And what I mean by that uh, is um, in the U.S. this has been most prominent because of the, the unusual and fragmented healthcare financing in this country. You have um, the private insurers, you have the government and safety net programs, you have the non-profit organizations that are both payer and provider. So the the, the history has been volume-based care. You get the provider, whether it's a physician or a hospital, gets uh, paid on the basis of each individual count, encounter or procedure. Um, but uh, because of that uh, volume-based reimbursement model, America has the highest per capita healthcare expenses of any country in the world, yet achieves you know, outcomes that rank maybe below the 20th and 25th you know, among the, the countries of the world. So there has been a very steady shift in recent years uh, away from volume-based reimbursement and towards value-based reimbursement. So instead of paying on the basis of how many procedures one has done, how many patient appointments we've had today, it's based on what are the outcomes, uh, both clinical and financial, how many times have these patients been admitted to the hospital or readmitted for the same condition um, if the patient has been already been admitted multiple times within a certain window, um, then the payer or its government and private insurance company may not pay for additional uh, care. So, so the, the emphasis is uh, slowly shifting towards prevention and, and wellness. Mm -hmm. uh, now, countries like uh, Canada, UK, and Australia with national health systems have already been value-based. There's a fixed pool of money for which to pay for health care, and that pool needs to be made to, to go as long and as far as possible. Um, so, so those can be considered value-based care organizations. So our device and software, by gathering data and optimizing patient's management, and then using the pools of data to determine patterns and predict when to intervene aligned with the value-based care philosophy. So those are the types of organizations that we're going to approach. They may be insurance companies that also have providers employed, or they may be large provider organizations that contract with um, governments or private insurance companies that have the value-based perspective. 
come forward, they may be national health systems okay. that have to care for large populations with a fixed tax-based revenue. I'm interested in that because having spent a lot of my life in Canada and the UK, where there is a large public health care system, um, so you're depending on the country, maybe targeting the private sector and other countries, maybe targeting the public sector. Presumably, the public sector may be one of the primary targets in China. Is that correct? Yes, uh, since, you know, at, at present and historically, the government has been a significant payer for, for health care. Um, there's an emergence of the private insurance industry, um, you know, with the growth of the middle class. But we're in a value-conscious environment, and I think that uh, even in the private sector, there's going to be an emphasis on value-based care, but particularly with uh, the technology that's becoming available, um, the ability. To, I mentioned the diabetes example earlier. In China, there are already pilot projects to do remote management of diabetes using blood sugar meters that mm -hmm. will transmit data via Bluetooth to So you said that probably in the second half of next year, you'll be you will have received some or all of the approvals and and become operational. So when when the company becomes more mature, say in three years' time, what will be the particular services it does directly, and what partners will it work with to deliver sort of the whole ecosystem of this? Yet, but I, I think some of them will. Um, 
so you know, the, the equivalents or the parallels rather to polygons uh, in the U.S., the parallels in Asia would be Ping um, Hong's Good Doctor or uh, Tencent's Wee Doctor, telemedicine programs. They are initially geared more towards uh, urgent or acute care, but they have also recognized the potential, the need in primary care they will need tools in different specialty areas for, for endocrinology or diabetes, and there are some technology tools that are available in lung pulmonary care. There's hardly any digital health tools that are available, and so we aim to be the supplier in those markets in three years, um, in addition to supplying national health systems and large you, as you said before, you'd probably outsource the, the physical manufacturing of the device, but presumably you'd remain at the center of, of the data analytics as opposed to outsourcing that. That's something that Vigor would always consider a core activity. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So whereas we uh, have contract mechanical and electrical engineers, um, we employ our own data scientists um, and analytics uh, specialists. Okay. Okay. I had a conversation earlier in the week with a, um, a biopharma company, and I was they were explaining to me the concept of CDMO, and it sounds like there's an analogous con. Um, concept there. They were the CDO to produce the bio ingredients and all of these things. Your CDO will be the contract manufacturer for your physical devices. Is, is that a correct analogy? Yes, uh, that, that's right. Um, you know, over time, the, the devices can become commodities. Um, uh, someone else, uh, a, a venture capitalist that I spoke with, um, after I explained our business model, um, the venture capitalist uh, said, oh, I, I get it. You're, uh, in some ways, uh, you're like the inkjet printer manufacturers uh, where they produce the device, but their recurring revenue comes from the sales of ink cartridges. Um, and, and I said, uh, yes, in, in some ways, you could view our devices over time as a commodity, uh, and it's really the data stream coming from the devices intelligence that will provide the interpretation of that data um, that is our source of return revenue. Okay, now you've just mentioned the involvement of the venture capital firm. You're the CEO, but uh, who who is the the owners of the company? Is there a diverse group of, of shareholders? So the, the company is um, registered in the U.S. and initially the founders uh, were the shareholders, and they were able to obtain non-diluted grant funding for the early development of the technology. Um, once they got past the um, early prototype stage, uh, then they had to raise um, additional capital done through angel investors, essentially. Um, I mentioned the uh, chancellor, the former chancellor at Duke University, uh, and some uh, alumni. University, who are angel investors, um, 
they participated uh, in a convertible note offering. And that convertible note offering was um, you know, it expanded uh, and then uh, brought on uh, some outside people from outside of the ecosystem. Um, brought on board uh, a seed stage venture capital firm, provided some funding, and another angel network that consolidated the, the funds from several angels into a single investment company uh, constituted the, the investment um, to date. And we'll have another round of funding, uh, growth funding, coming from institutional VCs uh, in the near future. But, uh, but that's how we progress so far is from grants, non-dilutive grants, to angel investors, seed stage VCs. Now, on your website, there's reference to, um, I think it's Verge Healthcare um, Investors. There, there's a relationship to J&J Labs, and there's mention of being involved with a med tech innovator. Um, I think I can understand the, the venture capital, but what's the relationship with J&J Labs, and what is the med tech innovator? Just a quick comment, so I, I said a seed stage venture capital firm, it's Verge, that, that, that is identified on our, our website. Um, and then the other two uh, were competitive um, accelerator or partnership programs. Uh, so Johnson & Johnson Innovation has, um, has an annual competition for bringing companies into its partnership program. They have physical J-Labs locations uh, in different, probably seven or eight of them around the world. And there's been one in Houston for, for a long time, uh, but it's been focused more on surgical devices. And, uh, and then they have uh, one in San Diego that has been more on uh, genomic and medicine and molecular biology. And then uh, uh, they opened one in Shanghai last summer, and uh, I was particularly interested in, in that one uh, because uh, it was a very diverse, uh, and it wasn't focused around a specific area. Uh, they do have a number of medical devices companies that had applied uh, for that, and, um, and because of the size of the market in China, I, I decided to focus on the J-Labs in Shanghai. So we went through a, a competitive process and were selected to be amongst a group of companies to work closely with Johnson & Johnson. Um, their chief scientific officer, Paul Stoffels, um, had been a, an entrepreneur uh, and started a company that led to the, one of the early and successful treatments for uh, human immunodeficiency virus uh, or AIDS um, or disease. And, and so his company was acquired by, uh, by Johnson & Johnson and his personal experience going through that process uh, has led him to conclude that there is significant innovation going on in startup or early stage companies that large corporations can benefit from and that large corporations may not be the best environment for, for breakthrough innovation. So they have a very uh, well-structured program to partner with 
with early stage companies that have promising um, products, and, and at some point, you know, they, they find uh, interest alignment uh, in making that selection, and there can be partnerships or even uh, acquisition by, by Johnson & Johnson. The other program, so the, the MedTech Innovator, is not tied to one company. Um, multiple companies. The, the founder of MedTech Innovator um, had previously been a serial entrepreneur who became a venture capitalist uh, and then uh, as a venture capitalist had been looking at medical technology companies and saw that um, the, the scientists that were often the founders and leaders of those companies um, needed uh, or lacked the necessary experience and resources to make something from lab development and regulatory approval and translate that into a commercial success. Um, and, and also sometimes in, in finding the right investment partners. So while he was still a venture capitalist, he created the MedTech Innovator uh, as a program to assist uh, med technology startup companies um, to get the resources they need to improve the chances for, for success. And, uh, MedTech Innovator is a nonprofit organization based in Los Angeles, California, but it's global uh, with the presence of an office in Singapore and a European office. And uh, they uh, have sponsors, including Johnson & Johnson uh, and a few other large corporations that cover the range of medical device and pharmaceutics um, and digital health. And so um, MedTech Innovator also applications through a competitive process and selects companies to become part of the partnership program and we get paired with one of the corporate sponsors. And, um, in this case, uh, Vigor is, is paired with a global medical device manufacturer. Okay. So it's sort of a parallel type of relationship that we have with J&J and the Medtech sponsor Okay. And I mean, do they become sort of a a longer term business partner? Do they possibly take equity in the company, or are they just more like a a mentor to assist your development or integration into local market? <clears throat> so at a minimum, they perform the mentor role, um, but uh, they they oftentimes will enter into partnerships um, for manufacturing or distribution. Okay or uh, joint product development, and then uh, in a, uh, I don't remember the, the percentages, but, but I think it's at least 20% of the time companies will get acquired in this process. Okay, okay. So in, in three years' time, how do you envisage Vigor? I can envision is that we'll have products that make a significant but beneficial impact on the lives of people with lung disease, that their um, quality of life will be improved, the disease will be better managed, um, so there will be greater cost efficiencies for the payers involved, um, greater health outcomes and quality of life for the patients involved. Um, and But as I mentioned, uh, because of the partnerships that we're developing now, a number of outcomes uh, could occur. If, if our technology you know, commercialization is a, a 
successful as I hope it will be, then there's a very good likelihood, given the, the M&A environment that I've seen, merger and acquisition environment for a good product, uh, there's a good likelihood in three years' time we may have been acquired. Okay. Particularly, you look at the, the technologies. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the, the acquisition or after the merger of these two companies that went public. And we, I'm not sure if we'll have an IPO in three years' time uh, and what our trajectory will be. Um, but, but I suspect that uh, looking at some other companies in the marketplace, again, the cardiology space, so as CEO, you're open to different outcomes, remaining independent privately, going to an IPO, or being acquired. You, you'd consider you're open to all of those different scenarios. Yes, yes, I, I am. Having, having been startup CEO a few times around now. My first two companies were acquired, and uh, you know, I, I'm very well versed with the alignment of interest with investors and shareholders and the focus on generating shareholder value. Uh, you know, we generate value for our customers um, and, and target the population. We generate value for them, then we generate value for the shareholders. And, and the value for the shareholders realize the shareholders, depending on the type of shareholders, they may seek liquidity events. And so, well, well aware of that, and if, if we do a, a good job in creating products and services for people, investing people, uh, then someone's going to, to recognize that value and want to, you know, they may create a liquidity event. Presumably, Vigor won't start generating revenue until after it's got the initial regulatory approvals. Is that correct? <clears throat> um, that's right, most most likely, but there's also a good likelihood that we can generate some revenues beforehand. Uh, I have conversations now with different organizations that are uh, very interested in investigational use um, of our products. So they. What I mean by that is they're not going to use it for diagnosing and staging patients uh, for which you would have to have a regulatory approval to use a device in that manner. Instead, um, these might be academic or research, uh, commercial research organizations that are simply trying to collect additional data um, to, to correlate and to do planning and perhaps to do um, modeling for these conditions and also looking at effectiveness of treatment. Um, so in other words, uh, patients won't be diagnosed and prescribed based on the numbers coming out of our products, um, but the numbers coming out of our products will provide insight and intelligence into other processes that these uh, organizations are, are very interested in. Okay. So um, there's a good likelihood that we'll be able to generate some revenue they would be sort of characterized as consultancy or research relationships? Yes, um, that, that's right. Primarily uh, research relationships. Okay, very interesting. Very interesting. So I think 
you, you've given very in-depth discussion of Vigor medical system. And now I just want to sort of turn and see how it sort of fits into the industry and how do you categorize yourself um, as a subsector of the health industry, the technology industry? What, what is Vigor? Is it a technology company? Is it a healthcare company? What, what sort of SIC code could you attach to it or, or could you? need further refinement um, because this is a integration of um, some, some disciplines uh, or verticals and, uh, within the, the healthcare and technology spaces. Um, so the term digital health uh, has been applied to, to, to this area um, because our products are used by healthcare providers in healthcare delivery, but they're clearly technology tools information management, uh, you know, the software component, the analytics component, uh, and then uh, the device uh, technology, the proprietary ability to measure lung volumes and flow rates without any parts. So, so it's an amalgamation of different areas, and the term digital health is, is probably the single digit. It doesn't explain everything, but it's probably the, the single best term that's available in the market to describe what we're doing. Just, just. I have a personal curiosity of big public health care systems, and I, I have some knowledge of Canada and the UK, a little bit about China. Are public health systems quicker, slower to adapt these sort of new digital health than, than the private medical center? Can you make any generalization about the applications of digital health in either the private or public health care system? Yes. Um, so historically, the uh, public um, health systems have focused on, uh, they've been, first of all, safety net organizations. Um, and as such, uh, they focused on what I would call bread and butter care, yeah. the, the essential care. And oftentimes, uh, that excludes uh, the latest technologies which have high price tags. So robotic surgeries, um, some of the latest medications um, that are, are very expensive have just been released in the market. They may not be utilized by some of the public health systems historically. Um, but uh, the, the crisis, uh, Aging populations um, with uh, flat revenues in a lot of the country, or competition for resources from other sectors uh, with increased budgets. Um, the, the mismatch in demand for health care and the ability to supply it by, by the government has caused some rethinking and forced innovation. So. The National Health Service in the UK has created an innovation division that's collaborating uh, with companies producing new technology. Um, the US uh, government, with its highest per capita expense for healthcare in the world, um, has also created some innovation programs. Uh, but primarily for the healthcare providers, uh, not necessarily for the tech companies to work with the government. So that's also why we're collaborating with some of the networking provider organizations to design some research programs where we can demonstrate 
economic and, and clinical benefits uh, of, of digital health solutions. So, so there is a transition that's occurring. And then I, I mentioned that the Chinese government has funded some pilot projects for digital health programs around diabetes management and heart disease management. So, so we're starting to see in the, in the last few years or more innovative mindset amongst the, um, the public healthcare provider entities in various countries. Um, and I think that the whole pandemic situation um, has, is going to accelerate this as well, you know, at least for telemedicine, the, the ability to deliver care without people coming into a facility when they, when they pick up this more disease than they came in with, um, that, that's driving one aspect of technology adoption, but the cost that of the care for COVID has been placed that's been placed on the government is also going to force more innovation and efficiency through technology. Well, that's interesting, and I mean, I guess it's hard to have a conversation today without talking about COVID. Um, when I asked that question to the the biopharma firm on Tuesday, what's been the impact of the pandemic on you? Has it accelerated business? And he, he said something to me that was new because I'm not a medical person. He said, it's been a problem because we've not been able to do our clinical trials as, as quickly because people aren't going to hospitals and that's that's slowed the whole process down. Um, now, do you have to go through clinical trials for for your device and and so what's been the impact of the covid situation on the development of vigor well, um, we've had um, both positive and negative effects uh, from covid uh, positive effects are that um, uh, well first of all regarding the clinical research we've already completed the trials for our device and our technology so, so we're not hampered in that regard. Okay. And we've already submitted the data from these trials to regulatory agencies who have deemed it acceptable and have told us um, if you fulfilled your clinical trial requirements. Okay. So, so we're past that stage. Um, another positive is that um, some of the uh, research organizations that we're talking to are they're specifically interested in our technologies, so that their research subjects will not have to come into the clinic or hospital to get their lung function measured. They can utilize our patients, their research subjects, can utilize our devices in their homes and submit uh, the necessary data without having to go to the, the research site. Uh, so so uh, we, we provide a, a really valuable solution in that regard. Um, on, on the one negative side, uh, you know, in, in some of the countries where we have personnel over doing some of our development work, um, the, the lockdowns, uh, people being told to stay at home for periods of time, have hindered some of our personnel from going to their offices where they have equipment. They can work from home with their laptops, but they don't have a large device uh, or um, accuracy testing, for example. They have to go to the, the lab to, to do the tuning of our, our product. Stay at home. They can't do that, so we've had small delays due to those situations. But okay. Other than that, uh, we have more positive 
benefits from COVID for our business. Okay. Okay. So that 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 covers, I think, most of the healthcare industry. We sort of jumped ahead when we were talking about Vigor. You've already given a a good overview of the association with Duke University and J Labs. So we don't need to um, repeat that. So let me just close off because we've just run a little bit over an hour, and and just sort of summarize and and capsulize a few things you've said. For the next, say, 18 months with regards to either funding, development, regulatory approval, what do you see as the key events and, and when do you see them happening? Yes, definitely regulatory approvals would be the, the highest priority key events uh, because that allows commercial marketing. Um, while we're working with the regulatory agencies, we're also working with potential customers developing the, um, their you know, use cases and helping them uh, redesign their care processes to be focused around proactive management rather than reactive treatment of patients coming in the emergency department or the hospital line so, so that they can achieve better outcomes at lower cost. That's a mantra. U.S. in particular these days. Um, and then the, uh, the other area is the development of, of partnerships with organizations that have interest aligned. So organizations that have medications that treat lung diseases, um, they have interest alignment with us because we can help diagnose. Their products won't get sold to doctors diagnose patients. And then their products won't get used properly if there's not a way to measure progress of the patients. So so we help them, the companies with pharmaceutical products achieve better outcomes uh, and then uh, their customers will realize greater value of their products. So so we're working on partnerships with those uh, organizations. You and said also sorry, go. And we're also looking at uh, other use cases specifically. Um, so one of those is uh, any time that somebody undergoes general anesthesia for a surgery procedure, um, there's a, for, for more than 10 years now, there's a well-established medical literature foundation, uh, research foundation, for assessing a person's lung function first before you put them under general anesthesia for a surgical procedure. Mm. Uh, if somebody has uh, some conditions or abnormalities in lung function, best to know that in advance and plan proactively for the anesthesia rather than in the middle of the surgery the anesthesiologist noticed the patient's oxygen level dropping yeah. and other parameters going awry and then trying to find the right medications to correct the problem. So that, that results in post-operative complications which would be completely unrelated to the actual surgery. And the patient will have the, uh, the torn uh, meniscus uh, in the knee other condition um, who was, none of the physicians realized that they also had an undiagnosed lung condition before the surgery until they had, the anesthesiologist had difficulty. So in, uh, in the U.S. and Europe, uh, there is a fairly regular adherence to sort of practice guidelines to assess lung function before surgery, but in the rest of the world, it has not been consistently, if at all. 
also there's central collaboration with medical device companies and others that vertical to the to screening patients under these reports. So we're Okay, I'm getting unstable call connection again on WeChat. So let's, let's just summarize it and, and conclude now. You finished your clinical trials, but you're still thinking it's not going to be the second half of next year until you get regulatory approval. So another, another year to wait for that? That's, uh, that's our conservative estimate. Um, there are some potential opportunities for backtracking. Because uh, COVID um, is a primarily respiratory disease, it has many different problems. Uh, but the, the greatest morbidity is from lung infection, yeah. respiratory failure. Uh, and uh, it, there have been many reports that patients' lung function, uh, they may recover completely and have you know, virus in the body, but their lung function may still be abnormal three months and have um, the virus cleared. So both for monitoring and for long-term evaluation progress and the and the, the mental history of COVID infection, um, our product improved greatly in these areas. And so uh, there is some reasonable possibility of that. Okay. But as the saying goes, we're not projected before they have. And then on the final point, you said there will be another round of funding. I think it probably won't be this year. So will that be to increase staffing, increase technology? What what would the next round of funding be used for? Yes, it, it's uh, what we call the growth funding. And so as we're doing the partnership development, we're creating plans with uh, partners that executing those plans will require people both on the partner side as well as on the bigger side. And so uh, we're able to create some plans with the staff Okay, very interesting. Thank you for that.